This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is July 21st, 2022, and this is episode 299. I'm Ian Bushfield. And I'm Scott Lundbaum. And joining us today... I'm Shannon Waters. Welcome back. Big, exciting time as you're at like a transition point in your career. Yeah, next week is going to be my final week reporting with BC Today. Yeah, it's sad in many ways, but it's always exciting to see where people end up, what they're doing. I hear you're going to still be very interested in politics. Lots of things to for people to keep their eyes on, I think. Yes, I'll still be in Victoria. I'll still be reporting on politics. And yeah, I'm, I am very excited about what's coming next. But it has been nearly five years with BC Today. It's been an amazing, unique role within BC political reporting. And so I'm definitely a bit, there's some feels around leaving this job. Yeah, and we'll get into some of the reminiscing. We'll take some time today to definitely talk about that. But before we talk about that, we have to talk about the BC NDP leadership race again, because it's officially off. Before we get into that, though, thank you patrons for helping make this show possible. Join them at patreon.com slash Let's talk about the race. It has started. The rules were announced last weekend. We almost forgot that was so long ago, just after Scott and Stuart recorded last week when I was knocked out with COVID. And I'm feeling better now, except for that lingering cough. But the race is off. So the next Premier of BC will be announced on December 3rd. That will let John Horgan be, I think, the 10th or 9th longest serving Premier in BC history, longest serving NDP Premier by quite a bit, because... They tended to crash and burn. (laughs) The campaign has officially started on July 17th. Membership deadline is September 4th. So just over a month still, if you want to be involved in this race to sign up. If you want to be a candidate, you have to October 4th. Voting starts on November 13th. If you want to be a candidate, you need some money. You need to raise it. You need a $15,000 initial entry fee followed by a second entry fee of $25,000. So you need to raise $40,000 at 1300 per person. Not impossible, but also not just change you can have lying around. You also need a little bit of support from the party. You need the signatures of 250 members, including a minimum of 10 members from each of the six of the eight regions identified by the BC NDP Provincial Council. So you need a little bit of support from around the province. Overall, fairly straightforward rules. It's a pretty quick race. It's done before the, not before the federal conservatives have chosen, but in a much faster Not dragging out over a year? No. Or the- it'll, it'll be just after the legislative session finishes too. So like we'll have the fall session and then the next leader will be chosen if it does end up being a competition. And I th- don't have what the BC Liberals numbers were in front of me, but the- Spending limit here is 350000 I think this is a lower entry fee and a, lo- a much lower spending limit than the BC Liberals had in their leadership race. Yeah, the candidate fees were 46000 for the Liberals, I believe, in their 
year-long race to <laughs> replace Andrew Wilkinson. So yeah, a little bit of a gap there, but not too much. $6,000 in total. I could not tell you the total spending numbers for the so, Liberals there. That is not stuck in my brain. There's around a million. Does, didn't Falcon Might get have been 800. For, yeah, 800, like but that. Falcon got in trouble for going above that, if I recall. He did spend more than you were technically allowed to, although... As spokespeople from the party pointed out, some expenses were not subject to the spending cap, and some of that was very opaque, and anyways, that's over now. All of this will be entirely moot, though, if no one else actually enters the race. We had our first candidate enter on Tuesday, unsurprisingly, David Eby, announced in the... I forget the name of the place, in Kitsilano, the place everyone hosts... Neighborhood House? Was it actually at the Neighborhood House? Oh, that's not where everyone holds their events. He launched in Kitsilano. It's his riding. It's where all the left-wing stuff happens in that part of Vancouver. And he was surrounded by party members. 48 MLAs endorsing him right off the bat. What does that say? I did a good job locking down the apparatus before this kicked off. Yeah, and it, it does feel a bit like a coronation is in the works, like between the endorsements from people who were potential competitors in the race having come out before EB declared to this show of strength at the campaign launch. It's hard to picture what what somebody running against David EB would be running on, where they would come from, and where their support would come from as well. Yeah, and his launch and his press release and all the media he's done so far, including an interview with you, have all been mild. Like, they have a tone that's... He's explicitly said, I'm not an activist anymore. I'm not trying to run as an activist. And it lacks anything that differentiates him from the NDP government under John Horgan. And now that makes sense, considering it's been a fairly popular government. But I think there is always an appetite during a leadership race, among some members at least, for what are the new ideas? What is What makes you different, at least? Yeah, and that's... I. So I interviewed EB the day after his campaign launch. Many of my colleagues in the press gallery spoke to him ahead of the campaign launch on an embargoed basis. And it was interesting to see how many times he basically said, don't expect an EB government to be all that different from a Horgan government. Don't expect a bunch of U-turns on policy. Don't really expect much that is different at all. No radical departures, I think. Like, radical departure and radical change were the phrases he used. And so I asked him about that when we spoke, just pointing out that both people who are big fans of his, who are excited to see him running for leadership of the party and those who are his detractors call him an activist and yet he's seemed to be distancing himself from that so I asked him to explain a little around that and he basically said that he doesn't he doesn't agree with that label being applied to him at least in terms of what people uh, maybe assume that it means and said that under an EB government, if he does indeed succeed John Horgan, people should expect for him to be focused on the solutions that he thinks will work, that are going to be effective to solve the problems facing the province. It made sense. Like, the 
government's big strength is that they haven't come across as radical activist types, but more competent manager types. And why not continue the winning play on that? Yeah, especially if it seems to be appealing to at least many members of your caucus, the majority of your caucus. Seems like a pretty good place to start. It'll be interesting to see how that continues to play out as he conducts something approximating a campaign. Is it a campaign if you're just doing it by yourself? Like he has announced that he has campaign co-chairs, Ravi Cologne and Katrina Chen, which isn't surprising. They both had come out and endorsed him pretty strongly. And they're both, I think, fairly well liked in caucus and pretty prominent members at this point of the next generation of the party. So he's got the scaffolds of a campaign on his website. He talks up all the stuff he's done and accomplished. He doesn't talk about the electoral reform referendum. He also doesn't talk about his time as a BCCLA executive director, I noticed. But he does talk up his time in Pivot, and he talks up working on money laundering, ICBC's dumpster fire. He's got to bring that one out, all the hits. So He didn't have much to say when I asked him about the renter's rebate. Not that I was really expecting much, but I did ask. I think one time I was doing an interview with him. This would have been... 18 months or so ago now and I asked him about it and he was like I know this is the thing that you always ask about (laughs) and so I asked him where it would be on his priorities list right because here we are in 2022 and the renter's rebate was first promised in 2017 and we have not seen it yet we are now told it's likely to be means tested which is an interesting way to go about things. Uh, but he said that he feels a commitment. He f- he feels an obligation and responsibility to fulfill the party's promises from 2020. And the renter's rebate was on there. It's probably coming someday. Maybe, but they've spent probably, what, four, at least $4 billion on the homeowner's grant since taking power? <laughs> and not a, you, you all just better I, buy I a mean, home sooner than <laughs> later if you want to take advantage <laughs> of that. If they make the renter's rebate retroactive, like that'd be nice. Take it back. Give us a lump sum payment from like 2017. I'm not going to hold my breath on that one, though. I literally just got our ICBC rebate check today. The one that was promised oh, in that $110 gas. I haven't got mine either. When was that first promise? I was trying to tell my partner like March. March. Okay. So, <laughs> and initially it was supposed to come out in May, and then we were told it was coming out in June, and and now it's July, and I'm wondering. I'm sitting here. I've got one more week working with BC today, and I'm like, is my rebate going to arrive before I stop working for BC today, or is my employment going to change before this rebate actually it's, uh, arrives? Kind of funny. The uh, the last rebate that came in before the election, I seem to remember they were a lot quicker getting those checks out. I wonder what changed. I, I don't know. Maybe ICBC is having staffing issues like BC Ferries is. I don't, I can't figure it out. Coming back to the race, it's interesting to see it effectively shaping up to not be a race. And this could be different in a couple weeks or in a couple months, but it seems unlikely given everyone is behind him except for eight. And we'll talk about those eight in a second. Uh, but you pointed out something in our show notes, Shannon, that's super interesting is that the BC NDP, despite its diversity or its equity mandate, which people asked Nathan Cullen about when he was pondering a run, and he just had the super awkward answer because there's no good answer. And I don't know if anyone's asked David Eby about that, but there has been no 
woman who's run for the party leadership since Carol James left the leadership. And only Harry Lolly was the only person of color to run, but he didn't even follow through in his 2014 run. And so it's just been a lot of white dudes. So I did ask Evie about this. Full credit to Katie DeRosa of the Vancouver Sun for asking Nathan Cullen when he was still potentially a candidate. She's the one who brought that forward. And so I did. I asked Evie, would you rather have an acclamation or an actual competition? What are you hoping for here? And he said he's not taking anything for granted. He has several months before he would end up being the only person in the race. So there are potentially opportunities for others to get in there. He also emphasized that he's grateful to have the support of so much of his caucus. And then I put it to him that he will be the third white man to lead the party successively. He would be the second one to be acclaimed with, if he is acclaimed, with no competition from anyone. And so I asked him, like, what that says about the state of the party. Now, the equity mandate was brought in, I think it was just after Dix became leader. And it took a little while for the kinks to be worked out and to be everybody to understand what it meant and it to be broadly applied. But when I asked him, he said, and this wasn't something that I had heard at this point in time, but he said that some of the other potential candidates that he's spoken to talked about the toxicity of politics and concerns about what their families would face if they became politicians, which I think are, or became the leader of the party, sorry, which are like two different things. One, I think most people would agree that politics are in a fairly toxic place these days, and that tends to be worse for women and for people of color and worse for women of color significantly. And so I think that could be an explanation for why some of the women who were talked about as potential leaders and women of color who were talked about as potential leadership candidates may have decided just to leave it. But it still begs the question, what, if anything, should the party be doing to make it more appealing or more accessible for qualified women within the party or within the membership to feel like they are viable candidates and that running for leader is something that they can do because it doesn't seem like they're there right now i don't know particularly when like the party is so very clearly coalescing around eb it's probably hard to feel like it's a particularly warm and welcoming place for people without maybe all those connections within the party yeah like the last couple of liberal leadership races have be more diverse than this one shaping up to be by quite a bit. Yeah, and it's Selena Robinson, the finance minister, when she was asked if she was going to run, cited that she thinks it's important for women to consider when they are in a position to take a run for leadership to really think about it. She eventually decided against, but it seemed like it was definitely something that was on her mind. The fact that the party could be headed for the acclamation of another man as leader if she... Let's talk about Selena and some of the others, because she is on that very short list of MLAs who did not endorse EB. So there's not too many in total. Unsurprisingly, John Horgan is on there. It would be surprising if the outgoing premier endorsed his successor, that would really turn it into an acclamation. Similarly, Raj Chohan is the sitting speaker. Staying impartial isn't too surprising. But then you have Selena Robinson, George Chow, Raleigh Russell, who's the MLA for I want to say South Okanagan somewhere in that area, Nelson, 
fairly new MLA. Brittany Anderson, also a fairly new MLA. Michelle Babchuk, a fairly senior MLA. And Nathan Cullen on that list. Russell is... Boundary Similkameen. That's the name. I had the right... Pretty common. <laughs> the right <laughs> corner of the province. <laughs> the south part. Yeah, I don't think it's surprising that Horgan is not endorsed anyone that would be something like anointing his successor so that one doesn't surprise me robinson said when she declared that she wouldn't run that she wasn't going to endorse anybody either so those are two who are quite likely the speaker thing i can also see it's a unique role within caucus so that may be where that one's at the rest are an interesting mix you've got Three that are in their first term, four that are in their first term, and then George Chow as well. And you wonder about Cullen, whether he's, how excited he might be about seeing someone else taking on the leadership role when he was likely considered a fairly likely contender in that race and now is not even going to be competing. So it'll be interesting to see if he makes an announcement at some point that he has come around to Team Evie. Or changes his mind and decides to run. See, he says never say never. That When he was first asked, he said never say never. And that was something Jack Layton told him because you never know what you're going to end up doing. And I guess the other big announcement with the launching his campaign is that he has to step aside from his portfolios and cabinet. So he's no longer attorney general or minister responsible for housing. And Murray Rankin was appointed to both of those. So he takes those on top of being Minister of Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. Rankin's a fairly accomplished lawyer and comes from Parliament where he think he was the federal NDP's justice critic. So he is a pretty natural fit for an Attorney General role. But being Attorney General and housing was already a lot. And then also doing the Indigenous Relations on there it feels is weird. quite a heavy load. Yeah, And it's not just a heavy load, but it's also a contradictory load in some way that I'm sure someone's going to point out at some point. Yeah, and like, what's... It was... Go ahead, Scott. And yeah, like, what is the message that's sent on reconciliation if it basically gets bundled in with everything else rather than having a minister dedicated to it full time? There's definitely... I feel there has to be some tension there, especially because the province is literally involved either in litigation against some First Nations over you know, things like territorial claims and and then also working on agreements like Blueberry River First Nation is working on an agreement over the impact of the other Peace River dams and industrial operations on their territory. And while the province has framed that as going in the same direction as the Site C dam settlement that they came to, or sorry, this is West Moberly, not Blue, Blueberry River settled there or got their court decision, West Moberly decided to go for a settlement on Site C with the province and the federal government. And they are also now having a discussion around the impact of the Peace River dams, as well as industrial operations on their territory. The province has said, okay, we're going to have this discussion, we're going to come to an agreement. But I talked to the West Moberly First Nations chief, and he basically said, if the province doesn't give us what we're looking for, we're going back to court. Because there's precedent there now, and we were open to negotiating, we welcome these discussions, but if things aren't going the way we think they need to be going, we're going back to court. And so Rankin, and I'll point out, he is the acting AG and housing minister at the moment, so that could change, particularly as we go into the fall session. But Rankin's got the attorney general 
portfolio, which involves these court cases, and then he's also got Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation, which is also a very complicated and demanding file, and then there's housing, which isn't even really related to the Attorney General role at all, but Evie has been handling, and there's, we're told, major legislation coming on that front this fall, when Evie is still likely to be campaigning for leader and so not able to pick that one up. So it'll be interesting to see if Horgan appoints somebody else eventually to pick up either the AG and housing portfolio together, or if he decides to split those and have two separate ministers handling them until the leadership race is settled. Yeah, that housing bill is the one that Evie keeps alluding to with, especially around the municipal elections. If cities don't approve housing, I'm going to bring the hammer down. And every three to five weeks, we've gotten another like, David Eby threatens the cities again, interview from whoever uh, is talking to him that week. And so this has been teased for quite a while. So it's clearly very high in front of mind for the government. And just, it's hard to picture anyone but David Eby moving that forward at this point, given how aggressive he's been on it. And I imagine there has to be like a little bit of tension in caucus around it because they can't all be hyper yimbies ready to tear up cities' powers. But For his part, Evie says he prefers to work collaboratively with cities and he has managed to unstick some very sticky situations with cities around mostly temporary or supportive housing. I'm thinking of Vernon here. Maple Ridge had some issues a little further back. So he says he wants to give credit where it's due. He wants to reward those cities who are building housing. And he said that one of the ways the province can do that is to help out with other infrastructure, social infrastructure, funding, giving them money for public spaces and enhancements that can make the new developments and newly densified areas more appealing and more livable to the people who are going to be living there. And that For the cities that aren't building housing that are maybe rejecting things like secondary suites or continually scaling down densification, that they should be held accountable for those decisions. Now, in the interview that I did with him, we didn't get into what that accountability really means. But I think the implication has been that they won't be top of the list for provincial funding for things like amenities and social infrastructure. But no, like full on stick. Just a lot of carrots. Like maybe a really big carrot and a really small stick. (laughs) I feel like they're both in the mix, but he's been really emphasizing the carrot aspect and downplaying the fact that the stick is there. I guess the final thing to discuss is there's a little bit more being discussed with EB. Everyone's got questions for him, especially if he's going to just be the default coronated premier. And one of the things that Andrea Wu has been asking him, and I think this will be out by the time this hits the internet is that oh he yeah is, her piece came out her piece is already with out. campaign announcement. All right, that he's a stay, stick he's a stay the course premier when it comes to the response the government has had on the toxic drug crisis which has so far gotten us up to six deaths a day yeah initially i was pretty surprised by this i find it surprising. He Basically, he said he has huge confidence in Sheila Malcolmson. And he cited the decriminalization, limited decriminalization that's coming from Ottawa in January, as well as strides on what the province likes to call safe supply, which is also extremely limited, and it is only prescribed, and it is not what most advocates and experts mean when they say safe supply when it comes to drugs. But we do have some safe supply options in BC. So, 
He says he has huge confidence. He gives Malkinson credit for the work that she's done. And initially I was surprised to hear him basically saying that he, what he sees as the future and the biggest opportunity for BC in terms of addressing this toxic drug crisis, which only ever seems to get worse in truly horrific ways, is treatment and recovery. That investing in treatment and recovery options is what he thinks the province really needs to do and to move forward on. And then as I did the interview and then I unpacked it, I remember that he and Malcolmson have been working together recently on complex care housing, which provides people who have overlapping issues, say substance use and mental health issues or traumatic brain injury, who are difficult to provide services to in the services that the province currently offers in the form of supportive housing to find ways to help them as well. And while this housing is voluntary, there's also been a bit of an implication that if people don't fit, can't make it work in complex care housing, then you have the Mental Health Act, which allows for involuntary committal and treatment. So it's maybe not quite as surprising as initially I thought it was, but I still find it very hard to swallow Someone who says he's the next generation of leadership, who has espoused progressive policies, who people have called an activist, essentially saying that what the province has been doing so far is either working or good enough somehow, and that the main area for improvement is a long-term solution. So no argument, treatment and recovery services should be much more available than they currently are, and anybody who wants to get into treatment should be able to get into it when they want it, not having to wait for huge periods of time, that kind of thing. But as has been pointed out to me by like multiple people that I've spoken to in the health committee has heard about, that's a long-term solution. That's not going to stop somebody from dying from a toxic dose tomorrow. That's a year or two down the road. That's maybe multiple attempts at treatment and recovery. It's not an emergency solution to a public health crisis. But when I pushed EB on that a little bit, he said he is skeptical of people who are blasé, as he described it, about the importance of treatment and mental health programs. And again, like I said, absolutely no argument that those are crucial components. But when we have nearly six people dying every single day due to toxic drugs, like maybe something a little more urgent is appropriate. You think about EB's own personal professional background, like he worked for Pivot, he worked with groups that work in and with communities who are so deeply affected by this. Not as recently, but it's not like the issue hasn't been discussed at government. And I'll just plug that you mentioned the health committee in there, they are consulting on the toxic drug and overdose crisis and asking British Columbians for feedback by Friday, August 5th. I'm drafting my own response for work for this. And it's just exhausting because it's you've asked this question many times and been told the answers many times. At this point, just do stuff. I don't even care. Just do stuff. It was recently pointed out to me. So like I have been covering this issue for my entire career as a professional reporter. I covered the announcement of the public health emergency by the previous provincial health officer back in 2016. And I remember thinking at the time, I wonder how much worse it's going to get before it starts getting better. Because Even at the time, I was a bit cynical about government's ability to tackle tough issues. 
And here we are in 2022. And if you told me in 2016 that we were going to be where we are now, I would not have believed you, even like my deeply cynical heart would just not go there. And it was pointed out to me recently that there have been recommendations around how to stem overdose deaths coming from BC coroners going back to the 90s. So the current chief coroner, Lisa LaPointe, has done two death review panels with actionable recommendations for governments to follow, and almost none of them have been effectively and fully realized. And the latest report that came out this year, the current government hasn't even explicitly committed to doing any of the things that were identified. And the 30, 60, and 90-day timelines from when that report came out are all gone with no action. On that very somber note, I think we can switch gears and talk about (laughs) your time covering BC politics. I want to call this segment BC Yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I love it. But let's go back to the start of your time at BC Today. You started in in the fall of 2017, right? Just after the Horgan government formed. Yeah, so it my first day in the legislature was the day that Daryl Plekis became the independent that must speaker. That was fun. Uh, it was really, I panicked because it was funny because I'd been already introduced to the gallery. I'd been introduced to the press gallery president at the time, given like a little tour of the building, that kind of thing. And one of the things that I've been told by one of the other gallery reporters was that if you ever find yourself upstairs alone, on a session day, when it's not like lunchtime or after hours or whatever, you're probably missing something and you should go find out what that is. And I literally had that on my very first day. I was like sitting upstairs, I'm getting the documents set up, I'm, you know, trying to figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. And I realize I'm all alone. And so I go down the stairs and everybody's peering into the chamber because Plekis is sitting in there by himself considering what he's going to do. And then... Later, I was in the front of a scrum with an incredibly angry Rich Coleman (laughs) talking about how mad he was that Plekas had decided to become the speaker. So I think it's fair to say that my time with BC Today definitely started with a bang. It was, it's such a wild thought to look back to how different and wild politics were then. Like that introduction kicks off so many characters that we covered so in depth, you covered so in depth where Plekis as independent speaker just goes super maverick for his entire time. Rich Coleman as interim leader is initially stable, but then things get a bit tense in the BC Liberal caucus as they try and pick Andrew Wilkinson at one point. What was the highlights in those early days? One of the things I'll never forget is how many people were incredibly confident that we'd be going back to an election within six months. That was a big, like a lot of people who are very familiar with the political scene in a way that I was not at the time, were very confident that the confidence and supply agreement between the NDP and the Greens was not going to last longer than six months. And it didn't last the full term, but it certainly lasted longer than six months. We had three, not quite three years, three-ish years 
of two parties working together to govern the province. So that was certainly a highlight. I was covering a liberal leadership race less than six months after starting with job. So that was interesting. We had the like the change in the way campaign contributions were handled was huge. And that was right off the bat. And it's funny because I'm I might be doing a piece before I finish trying to ask the parties how they spend the the taxpayer money that they now get that was definitely going to be temporary per John Horgan in September of 2017. That was definitely going to sunset when the legislation said it was going to, except then a parliamentary committee made up of a bunch of MLAs whose parties were going to benefit from that taxpayer money decided that was actually a good idea to keep it. But that was a huge shift. And I look at my reporting now about party fundraising and where it's at Versus trying to compare, and you can't even really compare what happens now to what happened before 2017, because it's just an entirely different ballgame. But it's interesting, because BC at that point in time was looked at like we'd been the wild west of political fundraising, we, we'd just seen a government fall on a confidence vote that had been in power for a decade and a half, we had this confidence and supply agreement that a lot of people didn't understand how it worked, was it democratic, was it not... We had a very bombastic Green Party leader in the form of Andrew Weaver, who is very different from the current leadership. So it's definitely, there's been a lot of ups and downs and progress made since 2017. So there's so many things I could pick off from there. David Eby was so deep in that campaign finance reform. You talked about the BC Liberal leadership races. You've now covered two plus a Green leadership race maybe talk about those leadership races. Like you've covered two now and we're entering, or you've covered three and we're entering another one that you won't get to finish covering, at least with BC Today. What are the, what's it like covering a provincial leadership race when your typical day job is day in and out mechanics reporting of what's happening in the legislature and in government? There's definitely, like, the thing I enjoy about leadership races is I get to do feature profile pieces, which is not something that I do a lot of. A lot of my coverage and reporting is policy-based or, like you said, mechanics-based around what's going on in the legislature or what's going on in the lobbyist registry, what's going on with campaign fundraising. And so it's more people-centered, right? It has to do not just with the policies and the promises that the people who want to lead parties are making, but with their personalities. So with the green leadership race that was happening in 2020, it was interesting to watch the people come forward after Weaver, who had made the party in his image in a way where he was just such a larger than life figure who never shied away from offering his opinion on absolutely anything. And then so you had some very different characters and you had him endorsing a candidate who was not an MLA from his caucus. He did not endorse Sonia Firstenow. He picked another candidate, I believe the last candidate to enter the race. I cannot remember what his name is, which is not great. Yeah, I think that was it. So there, obviously, there was some tension there. He didn't have the, Weaver didn't have the same vision for the party that Firstino does, and now she's leading it. The first liberal leadership race is honestly like a bit of a blur. I was really learning on the fly. It was very difficult for me to get access to some of the campaigns because nobody knew who I was. 
And so I did a lot of chasing for not a lot of joy on that front, although I did eventually profile all of the candidates. And there's a big learning curve to figuring out like how a leadership vote works and the sort of party mechanics that go on. And the fact that you have to go to each individual campaign, you can't go through caucus or anything like all new connections, all new outreach. The most recent liberal leadership race was definitely a bit different from the previous one, although it was also a big theme of renewal, which was interesting given that Kevin Falcon is now leading the party. But again, it was about partly about people. So you had several MLAs in the race, but you also had people who weren't part of caucus who I wasn't previously familiar with and had to get to know. And it's an interesting thing to watch a party wrestle with where it wants to go and what, how it sees, in the case of the liberals, its path to getting back into government because that's where they want to go. They do not want to go through another election and lose to the NDP. When that election will happen and whether or not they will in fact get the victory that they're looking for is anybody's guess at this point in time. But yeah, the covering the leadership races is interesting. There's There was part of me that was really hoping we were going to see something like a, an actual competition with the NDP, but seeing everybody form up behind EB, it really does feel like that's less and less likely. And that may not be the worst thing, but like you pointed out, it does seem to be like a bit of a missed opportunity to discuss what's working, what's not, where do we really want to go, what is the direction that we want to take, and who do we want to lead us in that direction. I mean, I would argue the BC Liberals at best only answered that last question and the rest still (laughs) remain to be determined. They've still got some time, probably. They're embarking on their... Half a session. Yeah, and they're embarking on their renaming discussions. Yes. So that's something we'll get to pay attention to, whether they adopt some old new name. There's a committee in place. They're going to be figuring out what the name possibilities are going to be, how the vote is going to go, and what the timeline will be for introducing a new name if they do decide to go in that direction. They're probably going to go that way, but we'll see. Of course, one of the big things to come up over the past five years was the pandemic and the just day-to-day shift that introduced in everyone's lives, obviously. Like it took, you had to start working from home like so many other people. Our legislature had its like one-day session where they decided that they could not meet in person. Yeah, the emergency session. That's the only time I have set foot on the floor of the legislative chamber. I said that I would go in and take some pictures and we had a camera guy there as well just looking at what was going on as they actually sorry that was after the emergency session that was when they were getting set up for the hybrid session when they installed the giant TVs in the chamber because that was another thing they did bought giant TVs and mounted them on either side of the legislative chamber and we could spend hours and hours talking about how the pandemic has changed things but I don't know. What's the question here? It was, what are the I guess what I'm curious, positives out of it? Or go ahead. I guess what I'm curious about is the biggest change I noticed watching was that everything was done remote, call-in lines. Like, How does that change reporting on politics when you get assigned like a slot in a call-in system rather than actually in a scrum? Well, for one thing, much like scrums, the call-in lines in BC have not been first come, first serve, despite 
some insistence that was the case at the beginning of the pandemic. But yeah, I mean, it changes things hugely. Like I was really frustrated at the beginning and not so much initially because we had these really long COVID availabilities where they were taking questions from at least all the press gallery reporters and then a few from Vancouver and maybe a couple from outside of Vancouver. But as you're probably aware, the access just ratcheted down and down until we were just having a half dozen of the same reporters asking questions of the health minister and the provincial health officer every single time. And so one of the things I realized was like, as uncomfortable as they can be, because scrum in the hallway, you'll often be like squished up into really awkward positions where you're like trying to hold your microphone to somebody's face without getting your elbow in somebody else's eye, that they were really good for me. Because even if a minister didn't know who I was, or didn't know who I wrote for, or might not even be entirely sure what I was asking, I could just yell questions at them during a scrum in a gap. And they would probably try and say something like they would probably offer some kind of response that I could then use in my reporting. And that I also benefited from the fact that my colleagues were asking questions that you could add on to when you got a second. And that all disappeared with the pandemic. And honestly, it hasn't actually come back yet. We finally got back to the caucus walk or something approximating it towards the end of the spring session this time around. But you had several ministers who were like fully... And this was always the case. Ministers, if they knew they were going to get into sort of a uncomfortable scrum might try to avoid it. There are a couple of escape routes they can use on their way into the chamber to avoid us. But there were a few that just started making themselves scarce so they wouldn't have to face reporters. And there were fewer reporters in the hallways, which also changes the dynamics. One of the benefits that we have is that when one minister has to stand in front of a wall of cameras and a bunch of other reporters, the other ministers have to squeeze by, and if you're looking to get them on something specific, it's easier to physically get your microphone over to them and ask them a question. If the hallway is wide open, and as is the case for most members of the NDP cabinet, I believe they have longer legs than you, it can be difficult to catch them before they get into the chamber. So, so it completely changed the game, and not for the better in terms of media access as far so as So that's concerned. why they're coordinating Evie, so it can run faster than anyone else. <laughs> There's that old political press. science you know paper about U.S. presidents that are taller tend to beat their candidates, and so the like height of U.S. presidents has increased over time. Yeah, Evie's definitely the tallest member of that cabinet. He's one of the more available ones, though. Like, he's not afraid of taking on questions and he's decent at answering them without sounding like he's using the message box as a shield. I'll give him that. So one of the things that also happened over your time was the 2020 election, the one election that wasn't supposed to happen, but it happened. How has the government shifted its approach over before, after that election with the pandemic also happening? Because they started out in the CASA agreement with the Greens, there had to be this spirit of nonpartisanship, or at least cross-partisanship with them. Towards the end of it, it was like, they're hamstringing our bills. We're not going to tell you what bills those are, but we just can't get anything done anymore. And now here we are with an NDP majority. Better or worse? I think that depends on your perspective. I mean, there was one bill in particular that the Premier said he just couldn't stomach the Greens blocking. And that one, I think the benefit of especially young British Columbians has not come back. I think one of the big things we've seen in like this 
had to a certain degree been the case before, but the issues around transparency with this government have really become apparent since 2020. And it's interesting because I remember in 2017, the message about like change and a new era of sort of accountability and transparency in a government that does things differently. And even within the press gallery, like an effort to establish a different relationship with the reporters who are there in the building and covering the day to day operations and Now it's just, it seems every day or every week there's a new story about like somebody filed an FOI and they got this ridiculous response back. We just filed one asking for opinion polling done on COVID and how people feel about COVID measures and that kind of stuff. And they asked for it first. And government communications and public engagement told them to go file an FOI, which now costs $10 for the privilege of filing. And they filed one and they got 428 pages back. And 423 of them were blank. And I, like, I just don't, I, that, that really says it all as far as I'm concerned. Like, there's no reason to withhold polling data. And in fact, there's a clause in the law that suggests that you can't, except for under very specific circumstances. And yet, 423 pages and that happens a lot like von palmer with the vancouver sun has joked that he has to resist the urge every time staff tell him he has to go file an foi asking them if they get a commission on every time a reporter has to go file an foi because it happens a lot and it's interesting because one of the things that the citizen services minister said when she introduced the bill was that reporters could still ask they can still go to a ministry and ask for information when they want it Now, that's true. We can, but they might not answer you. They might not answer you for days. They might respond with a statement that is not an answer at all. They might not take your calls. Like, I've literally had staff contact me over an issue, and then when I followed up with them and the conversation didn't seem to be going in the direction that they wanted it to go, they just stopped responding. And it's a tactic. That's one of the things that was pointed out by by some of the people who spoke to us CTV in the wake of their latest FOI was that the people who are doing this know what they're doing. They know that news cycles move quickly and they know that sometimes just by stalling, sometimes just by forcing a reporter to complain, to go through the complaint process, which is fairly arduous. I've had to do it recently myself and it takes time. You might just not have to deal with the issue that you were going to have to deal with if you were upfront and transparent. And so that is, I think, one of the big things that we've seen lately from this government. The other thing that kind of comes to mind when we were talking about EB and staying the course and not doing anything radical is that they have a huge majority, the NDP currently. They can basically pass any legislation they want And nobody can do anything about it. And yet, we haven't really seen a lot that's like super ambitious. I guess you, if you want to call the FOI bill ambitious. It's ambitious, just in a bad Um, way. You can have bad ambitions. (laughs) Ambitious in the way of, it's one of those issues where I feel like people like me, reporters, people who are paying a lot of attention to the house get really angry about it. And a lot of people are just like, who care? Like, it doesn't matter. But I think. Sorry, Dawn. I was just going to say, I can only, like, it drew some flack, but I can only imagine, like, the shitstorm that would have happened if uh, the BC Liberals under Clark had tried to introduce that very same bill. It probably would have 
yeah, spurred an even bigger backlash, but you'll never know. It's a what if. Yeah, but we haven't, so we haven't seen a lot of really ambitious policy transformation that some people might have thought was coming out of a majority government. That's not to say that there haven't been significant pieces of legislation and policies introduced, etc. But when you can literally do sort of anything you want in the legislature without any kind of check or balance because your caucus is just that big and they're all going to do what they're told because that's what they do. Like, it's interesting to me that we just, we haven't seen as much sort of big flashy bills as maybe we could. I'm cognizant of the time. And so before we move on to our quick takes to round out the episode, what are you going to miss about covering the legislature for BC today? A lot of things, and a lot of them have to do with what BC today is and who runs it. So my boss, Allison Smith, is phenomenal. And when I first started BC today, it was basically her, me, and a copy editor. And now we have people working in Alberta and people working in Toronto. Allison doesn't do the bulk of the reporting for Queen's Park today anymore. That's now Alan. We have a bureau on Parliament Hill. We have a sales team. We like it's grown and it's consistently grown. I'll miss like the rhythm of reporting on the legislature. You go in in the fall and you do session and it's crazy and you're so exhausted by the end of it. And then there's a couple months to like recover and then you do budget day and then the spring session comes and By the time you get to the end of it, you're like really grumpy. And every time I think I posted every time like a picture of the building at the end of May or beginning of June and be like, not coming back here for a really long time. Little did I know when I did that this June that it might actually be a little bit longer. But I'll miss that covering legislation that I really like being able to get into the details of things and the fact that it's such a unique niche. Nobody covers the kinds of stories that I currently cover because I get to do it for a very specific audience and because since we're a daily publication I have the time to step back from the announcements of the day and spend some time looking at angles that maybe aren't getting covered by others. As much as there are some things that I'm really excited to get away from, there are definitely some things that I'm going to... Well, switching to quick takes. The BC government announced today that they're bringing in a cooling off period for home buyers. So starting January 1st, the home buyers get three days to change their mind and get an inspection done if they had a no clo- or no condition offer put in. If they do so, they if they exercise the option to cancel, there will be a cancellation fee of one quarter of a percent of the purchase price. This has been something we're hinting at for a while. All in, it seems like a reasonable policy to put in place particularly in a frothy market where very few people can exercise any real uh, power to put in conditions on offers. This is a policy we definitely needed last year, but like right now the market has cooled significantly. I'm watching homes in my neighborhood because I'm a homeowner now and this is apparently what you do for fun. You're like, what is my paper money worth? (laughs) And things aren't moving in my neighborhood as much as they used to. There's been one sale in my neighborhood in the last three months, I want to say, versus it was like two to three a month 
prior to that, and it's not a big neighborhood. That said, this is still a good consumer protection. It's not going to help cool the market. It's not going to make homes more affordable. But when we were buying our home, we were making no condition offers, or we were getting close to you pay for a home inspector to go in before. And one of the houses we did that for, there were like 10 inspectors there that day, because that house ended up getting 30 or 40 offers. And you're like, all that inspection is telling me is how much I'll have to pay for if we win this house. Like, or if you should just back out entirely, like you're not going to be able to negotiate that, oh, actually, they found these three issues. So let's bring the price down. Buyer didn't or the seller didn't have to care. So nice protections, home inspections, I think are super important on things that are so expensive, even if it's just a peace of mind to know what you're getting into. And it's hard to disagree with this, the cancellation fee gives there still some credit to the seller. So yeah, like you, you're, seems pretty well balanced. You're tying up a big thing they're trying to sell, and like a small compensation if you decide about it seems reasonable. Yeah, this one's been a long time coming. There are other suggestions for ways to improve consumer protections in the housing market that the government hasn't currently picked up. The BC Financial Services Authority did a whole report that came out in May just saying, here are a bunch of ideas that you might want to think about and consider. And one of the things the BC Real Estate Association really wanted to see was a five-day pre-offer period where when you list a property, there's a holding period, essentially five days where you can't accept an offer. Just giving people the time to take a look, consider whether they're interested in the property, etc. At this point in time, the province isn't proceeding with that, as well as a bunch of other recommendations that came out of that report. But Minister Robinson says they're still looking at it. Those might come down the road. The five- yeah, and I know the federal government also has its home buyers bill of rights that the BC or that the federal liberals campaigned on and they put some of it I think into the budget or at least they're talking about still rolling that out so I don't know how the different levels of government work on this constitutionally but the feds are also very concerned about this five these kind of issues days of not being able to accept an offer seems hard to enforce like, it would be real easy to like if someone actually wanted to put the offer in you just don't execute on the transaction but you accept it at all but name yeah and i don't know that the how the pre-offer period would necessarily deal with that but at least formally you wouldn't be able to move forward with accepting a bid until that five-day window had passed and then you'd also have then the three-day pre-offer or the three-day cooling off period that comes in so Essentially, there'd be at least eight days from the time you list your house until you could close on it, which my understanding is sometimes the turnaround is a lot quicker or has been in the housing market in recent months. Then again, a lot of sales also take two to three months because you're moving, in some cases, a million dollars. And sometimes like we sold a condo and bought a house and there are a lot of moving parts in those kind of transactions. So making them a bit sticky seems reasonable. No one's really against it. What people have been against is changes to ICBC in many different ways. The BC Supreme Court has been hearing complaints about efforts early by David Eby to cap litigation costs and limit the number of experts that could go and try to stop the dumpster fire. This brought on a number of constitutional lawsuits 
one of which has now two of which have now won. He the the initial changes were struck down as unconstitutional. They tried something different, and now that has been again struck down as unconstitutional by the BC Supreme Court. Yeah, so the province won one of the core challenges on appeal. I think that was the one around. Oh God, I wrote it down. Around one of the aspects of like how much money could be recovered in these claims cases. Now they're dealing with one, someone who, along with the Trial Lawyers Association of BC, is challenging the cap on claims and the fact that the way the new system works restricts how your care potentially is paid for, etc. So they're challenging. That one's fairly new. I think it was only filed recently. And then the recent decision that the province has also decided to appeal has to do with restrictions placed on costs that people can claim related to like expert testimony about say their injuries or the state of a crash what happened etc so those restrictions were found to be unconstitutional by a lower court and now the province has decided to appeal but it's gonna be interesting to see because no fault what the province likes to call enhanced care at ICBC is a big shift was a big shift for the way that people who are involved in vehicle collisions and injured are treated. And the province said that it was both going to reduce costs and provide better care for people who are hurt. And so far, it seems to have reduced costs. ICBC's back in the black. They're making a profit. The question now is, are there issues with the way people access care and the way that they are forced to navigate the systems on their own rather than with a lawyer arguing for them in court in terms of what they are entitled to. Whether in the long term they work out the bumps that have come up so far, some changes get made, some tweaks, or whether eventually the system itself ends up getting gutted because it's not working the way that it that EB basically said it was going to. Yeah, and we've gotten... The string of anecdotes you usually get when something very controversial happens and you have a very vested interest like the Trial Lawyers Association, who clearly never liked the proposed changes. And they do work that is important, but it is also in some cases viewed as ambulance chasing. And so it's that tough situation where it's hard to know what the truth is, right? Because there's always going to be an outlier case in any major change and people who fall through the cracks and that's tragic and we should try and figure out what happened there and help them. Especially in the case that we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago of the cyclist who got screwed over and was able to get very quick changes from the government through his effective lobbying. Not everyone is as privileged or has the ear of the right people in the same way. That's definitely going to be an ongoing file and pain in the ass for this government. Very much TBD on that one, I think. Shannon, uh, normally we'd ask you to plug where your uh, your your publication, but uh, that's going to be changing soon. Why don't you give it one final plug and also let people know where they can find you after you depart? Yeah, if you are interested in the nuts and bolts of BC politics, including color coverage of Question Period when it's going on, you should follow BC Today Official on Twitter. And if you're interested in depth stories about all things BC politics, including my work over most of the last five years, politicstoday.news is where you can find all of my work that's not behind a paywall. And then if you are interested in pictures of my incredibly cute, not really cute, 
kittens anymore who are actually sleeping peacefully beside me right now, which is such a relief because occasionally they're just chaos monsters. You can follow me at so bitter, so sweet on Twitter. Thank you so much, Shannon. I'm so excited to see where you land next. I'm excited to eventually be able to tell people <laughs> where I am going, but we are not there yet. So it's been awesome. And you're too. always welcome. And you're always welcome back here if you want to talk BC politics. Well, hopefully we get to do it again soon. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.